nervous to come up here, but I knew this might be the first time I had to try to carry this podium on my own. And, like, and so thanks, Josie. Like, we don't have like a featherweight class yet podium, and so I might need, need that. Um, seriously, appreciate it. Uh, this morning, though, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be back in John chapter 8. Um, as you turn there, this is your first time at the journey. I know we've welcomed already, but I just want to say, like, welcome. We hope you feel cared for and loved. And um, as we spend our time together, then afterwards, I hope someone will come and greet you and welcome you. It's an honor that you would join with us this morning as we praise Jesus, as we open up his word. And um, so uh, we're going to be in John chapter 8, though. So if you have your Bibles, want to open there. Um, this morning in John chapter 8, we're actually going to unpack uh, one of the most famous sayings of Jesus, perhaps one of the most known inside, actually, and outside of the church, Like what Jesus says here in this text this morning, it's inscribed on governmental buildings. Um, There's university institutions that have it on their key pieces of architecture. It's it's used in films and movies. And I bet many of you actually know it by heart. You might, you have it memorized. You might even repeat it often. Um, What we see here is in John chapter 8, Jesus is going to say, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, right? You've heard that often. It's in this text this morning, Jesus says it. And and much like the last time we were in John chapter 8, Um, What we have is Jesus, at the beginning of the section we're starting, picking up halfway through the chapter, he's making another um, overarching, foundational statement of truth, of reality that he's speaking to. And like last time, after he says this, he then spends the rest of his time in this back and forth with the people that he's talking with, where, where he says something true and they give a challenge or resistance, and he responds again with further truth and back and forth. And so um, this morning, the way we're going to tackle this together is we're actually going to read it in one chunk um, all together. We're going to read verses 31 through 59, and then we're going to spend our time a little bit above the text. Like sometimes we might walk it through a text verse by verse, um, but I think actually for our time this morning, it makes sense to see it all over the scope of what it is. So it'll be more 40,000 feet view of the text as we hold it together. Um, and the reason is because as we do it, we want to see a few things in this. We want to see how his words, these truth that Jesus is revealing what we really need. He spends time unpacking that. And after that, he also shows who we are, our identity. But then he ends his times identifying who he is. And so as we hold it together as one giant text, I, th- I think we can do that um, a little bit, a little easier. And so I'm going to read verses 31 all the way through 59, if you have your Bibles and want to follow along with me. It says, Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, you are really my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We are descendants of Abraham, they answered him, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? Jesus responded, Truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. I know you're the descendants of Abraham, but you are trying to kill me because my word has no place among you. I speak what I have seen in the presence of the Father, so then you do what you do, you do what you do, um, or sorry, so then you do what you have heard from your father. Our father is Abraham, they replied. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus told them, you would do what Abraham did. But now you are trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You're doing what your father does. We weren't born of sexual immorality, they said. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, because I came from God, and I am here. For I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, 
because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature, because he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet, because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Who among you can convict me of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who's from God listens to God's words. This is why you don't listen, because you are not from God. The Jews responded to him, Aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? I do not have a demon, Jesus answered. On the contrary, I honor my father and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and judges. Truly I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Then the Jews said, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died and so did the prophets. You say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the the prophets died? Who do you claim to be? If I glorify myself, Jesus answered, my glory is nothing. My father, about whom you say, he is our God, he is the one who glorifies me. You do not know him, but I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews replied, you aren't even 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, For Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. Okay. So it's a lot, right? A lot of verses. As as we start, I think it's good to be reminded as we start the second half of chapter eight, just identifying who is Jesus talking with here, right? And then this is the first thing we see, that Jesus begins this new set of dialogue with the Jewish people who had believed in him when he said he was the light of the world. If you remember the last time, it was about five weeks ago that we were in this text, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, and a group in verse 30 puts belief in him. And so here Jesus, he's talking to a particular group of people who have believed in him in some meaningful way. But I think it's also necessary to note that he isn't just addressing them because they're a group of believers, but he's also directly addressing their belief, right? Like that's what verses 31 and 32 were. Um, I'll just read them again because that's where we're going to be at some of our time. It says, Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you continue my word, you are really my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Right? So he said, he's actually addressing their belief that they claim to have. And I think this is what's really important for our time today. Like what Jesus is saying is if we really believe in Jesus, it's because we belong to Jesus. Like Jesus here, he differentiates between this intellectual or mere emotional belief and actual belonging. And that's because one can be temporal, right? But the other is lasting. And in fact, um, belonging to Jesus, as we consider the whole scope of Scripture, we see it actually precedes belief. Like those who belong to Jesus, they're the ones who have true belief. They're the ones who will really believe. And it'll be these that will know the truth, and then the truth will set them free. And that's part of the reason why we read this whole group of verses at once. Because as we hold it all together, we see John's making unbelievably clear that this group possesses a belief that is shallow, it's incomplete, it's false, right? Like meaning, from what they say in response to Jesus, like they don't really believe. And in this, what we have is we have John actually providing this, another example of what I read someone call like fickle faith. Like, Like in the Bible, there's this difference between a faith that, that fades and a faith that actually realizes salvation. And I, I want to be really particular with what I'm about to say with what I mean, but I think it's important then as we read this to realize that faith is not what saves us, right? Like your faith is not what saved you. 
Like we believe together as a group of people, faith alone. Of course we believe that. But not because faith alone will save us, like far from it. No, faith alone because faith is in grace alone, in Christ alone, right? Like Ephesians 2. And so actually I was reading this week, um, I read someone say right along these lines, I thought this was gold. It says, it's Jesus' grace that keeps you in the faith. Not your faith that keeps you in Jesus' grace. That's a good word, right? It's his grace that keeps you in the faith, not your faith that keeps you in his grace. And what this means is that you are not saved in this room by the strength of your own faith, but rather the strength of your God who your faith is in. As I thought about this, and so like two months ago, we were packing up suitcases to to, um, come home from Bangkok. And so a little bit different than uh, Southern Illinois. We lived on the 33rd floor apartment and it was this wonderful opportunity to daily um, combat my irrational fear of heights. And so just to like, God provided two years of it. And so not a huge fan, but I had some time to work through that. Um, and I had this, like, I had to convince myself to have faith that this building was going to stand as we were at the very top each and every day. Um, and as I did, like, <laughs> joking aside, but also kind of serious, like my faith that that building would remain structurally sound, like, that wasn't what kept it standing, right? It wasn't that I convinced myself and therefore because I had faith, the building then stood. No, that wasn't what kept the building standing. But rather, my faith that it would stand is actually what allowed me to remain in it each day and to rest in it each night. Right? As I look down and just imagine how far that would be, I stayed and my faith allowed me to then experience it for its strength. Faith, it rests on, it clings to, it continues in Jesus. Because real faith, it's measured by those who persevere and remain in Jesus. And again, John then, he's pointing out that this group of people, they don't have that kind of faith. Like you would have actually seen this as y'all walk through chapter 2 and chapter 6. That there's this intentional repetition in the book of John of people who claim to believe, yet Jesus shows have fickle faith, right? Fading faith. Finite faith. However we want to define it, right? Or alliterate it. Um, Many people, uh, that was all I had. I had three, so I tried to come up with more, but that's the most I could come up with. Um, <laughs> many people who are in some way, they're intrigued by Jesus, but really who believe in him, right? More to the level of what he can do for them. Like we, we would say more fans than followers, that they're captivated by this celebrity of what they hear about Jesus, but really they're just interested in what they think they can get from him. This guy named D.A. Carson, as he walk through this verse and and this group of people and how um, they would often come to Jesus and profess a belief and then walk away, he noted that Jesus, he's never interested in just multiplying numbers of converts if they're not genuine disciples. And he says, and therefore, he would actually force would-be disciples to count the cost, and he'd often turn them away. Like, meaning, Jesus, he's not merely after your emotional conversion and a brief moment of interest, but he wants you to make a real, intelligent decision to count the cost. He wants you to be his disciples. That's what it says here, right? To be his followers. Jesus, he was after making real disciples, not just counting new converts. So what he's doing here, he's actually leaning into their professed belief so that it could reveal that they're not really leaning into him. And my prayer is that it'll be the same here. Like that the journey, it's a gathered people who genuinely desire to be disciples of Jesus. And this means in Sunday mornings, It's not a time where we try to coerce people to come into the room, right? Like that's not our end goal, um, just so our congregation could grow. Sunday mornings, they aren't simply measured by how many people we could get here or convinced to stay, but rather each Sunday morning is primarily the gathering of the fellowship of our church. Like this is a family gathering and all are welcome and wanted, 
But the end goal of each and every week is to make much of Jesus in corporate worship and then to give space to open his word so he can continue to make us further in his, in his image as his disciples. And in fact, this is exactly what Jesus points to in these verses. Like Jesus defines exactly what it looks like to be real disciples of his, to have real belief. And so how does he do it then? Like how did Jesus identify his disciples and how they were made? Well, he, he says that he defines his disciples as those who abide in his word. Like Jesus is saying then the mark of discipleship, the end goal of our church is perseverance. It's abiding, it's remaining in him and what he says. And so that's what he explicitly says here in the text. But the reality is then there's this implicit truth that comes along with this, right? The, the flip side of the coin. And what it is, it's that Jesus he not only offers like one dramatic moment of deliverance, and he does, and we call that justification, but also he asks and he calls for a life built on his word and his truth. Or in other words, real belief, authentic faith, is just as much progressive as it is instantaneous. And scripture shows us this, right? Paul says in Romans 5.1, therefore we have been justified by faith. That's instantaneous. That's a moment, right? We're made right before God. But then we have in Acts 26, as Luke, as he actually talks about Paul, the author of that in his ministry, he says that we are sanctified by faith as well, meaning it's a faith that's growing or that we progress in. And it is this that John is speaking to, that if we remain in Jesus, this means that we will be his disciples. And as we know his word, this truth, we'll, we'll experience his freedom. Like as we demonstrate we are truly his, his freedom will be ours. But what this also means then is that until we come to know this faith, like we're not really free. I mean, Jesus is saying here, he's pointing out to them, showing specifically that they're not free and showing them why. And we've already mentioned this whole passage, it records this pattern where Jesus speaks truth and the Jewish people respond with their challenge and resistance, like that pattern in particular, like verses 37, 43, 47. We see theirs and really like our own, there's this specific and natural response to Jesus. And it's actually resistance and rejection. Like that's what their response is, is Jesus shares truth. And what we, if we're honest, we, we see that's also our own. Like what this text reveals is the first thing that has to be fundamentally removed from our life is resistance to the word of God. And yet herein lies the problem. Like here's the tension in the text then. Like Jesus is pointing out, like we have to know the truth, but fundamental who do we are is to be resistant to that truth. And yet we need freedom that's attached to that truth. So here's the problem. Like if real freedom is attached to real belief that is measured by those who are real disciples, I mean, that's what he says at the beginning here. And real disciples are those who remain in Jesus' word. Yet fundamental to who we are is to reject the very word we need to remain in to be free, right? Or to say it again another way, if eternal life is at stake, and it is. And in Christ alone is it found. And it is. And he says that we are freed into this life as we remain in his word of truth. Yet fundamental to our very identity is to reject this very word, which means that we can't experience this freedom in this life that we need. Like, all, our problem is, guys, is we're not just merely inclined not to believe. You don't just have an inclination where you're, it's not natural to you to move that way first but rather it's our very nature. Like the very being of human being is unbelief. Like we are constituted by our will to unbelief. On our own, belief is impossible because in my sin, I am willfully resistant to the word of God. 
And so here Jesus says, the call on our life is to remain in his word. And as we're honest, we consider, consider the whole scope of scripture. The will of my life is to reject it. In light of this, I've heard someone say before, unless the spirit of God by the grace of God overcomes then our resistance to the word of God, we simply aren't going to believe. And I think like, as, as I say that, there's this maybe natural tendency to buck up to that idea a bit, right? Like as if that reality somehow makes God less good or maybe makes him too powerful in our mind. I don't know, right? Like as if somehow it's a bit more of a comfort that our belief, our salvation is equally dependent on our response to choose Jesus as it is up to Christ's initiative to offer it first. And as I share that, I'm not denying that there's agency or authentic belief or even responsibility. But in a way beyond our understanding, this belief that we're called to have, that Jesus is telling this group that they must have, it's only made possible through a moving work of the Holy Spirit. I imagine you would have talked through this in John chapter 3 when Jesus had the conversation with Nicodemus. And I hope this is of comfort, but I also recognize it may be as difficult to receive sometimes as it is for any of us to understand. But if that's the case, I also want to offer as I ask you, like, do you want a God who's in complete control or completely like you, right? Like, which God do we want? Do I want a God who's in complete control or completely like me? Do I want a salvation that is dependent on your belief or that your belief was dependent on him? Because as I think of this, I find real comfort in the reality that though my response is real, and it is, this responsibility fully rests in its finite form within the eternal sovereignty of God. Like a fully sovereign God whose goodness and his greatness are both beyond my understanding, yet because of who he is, I can measure them fully on the cross. Like as his love and his power were demonstrated on the cross of Christ, I can now see him work. And even though I know he exists and still acts in a way that's beyond me. So we have a God who we're calling who's beyond our belief, right? And he, or beyond our understanding. And yet it should be of comfort. And we're really left with one of two choices then. We have a God either who um, is beyond our own ability to understand, like this is a window to see him and we, we come to terms with that and, and we're, we find comfort in that or, or we're honest. And what we have here is more of like a 3,000 year old written mirror that we just dust off. It really just reflect, reflects back mere mortal man. I share this because I think we have to begin with this idea of what we're called to in real belief by believing that our problem is on our own. We are willfully unbelieving. Like I know that's a bit of irony there, but that's the start to believing is understanding that on our own, we are actually willfully unbelieving. And so our only hope then is for Jesus to reveal to us his truth that removes this resistance. Like a truth that not only registers in our minds, but actually moves fully in our hearts as we realize our desperate need for mercy one that causes us to be brought to a place of yearning where we know Jesus can bring us to a place that we can't bring ourselves. I, I read someone say this week, and I thought it resonated with the text and even this idea. Um, he said that unbelievers in Jesus, they recognize their sin as their freedom, but believers recognize their sin as their bondage, right? Like that's how like, do you know if Jesus has brought you to this point? Like unbelievers, they still recognize their sin as their freedom. But those who really believe who the Holy Spirit's worked in their life, they begin to recognize their sin as their bondage. So our prayer is that God will bring us to see our sin for what it really is. And he'll move this resistance from him as he calls it out in our life. And as I share that, I ask, like then 
how do you see your sin, right? Like, what do you believe to be true about what Jesus says you need and about who Jesus says he is? Like, like this morning, where are you resistant to the word of God? Because the truth is, of our resistance, is that it's only by the posture of surrender can we actually come to Jesus. And what this means then is, real belief has to begin with real surrender. And as I was thinking about that, like, what a wonderful reality. Like, think about this. Where else can you think of that surrender would mean freedom? Like, as you think, people say, I I surrender. When does that ever mean an authentic experience of real, tangible freedom in their life? Yet here in this chapter, we see, and even what we're about to unpack next, like, as we come to Jesus, say, "I, I surrender to you, Jesus, this truth and this reality of freedom, it actually leads to family, right? Not loss of it. We receive this status of sonship that John talks about. We don't forfeit it. And so what we see here is Jesus, he actually offers the freedom that we need, not just by convincing through information, but actually changing our very identification. Or again, like a belief through belonging. Meaning then, again, necessary to have what Jesus would identify as authentic belief, what they don't have in this chapter, is our identity has to change. We have to belong to him. And again, in this chapter, in these verses, then we see there's actually this twofold reality presented regarding our identity. There's this negative and this positive. It's who we are on our own and who we can be as we're found in Christ. And actually how our identity is actually tied to knowing and being set free by Jesus. I mean, John shares this here, right? He says, we must be moved from being children of the devil, who he says is the father of lies in verse 44. And we know from scripture, we actually get moved to being identity as sons and daughters of God, the author of all truth. What this means then is, is Jesus, he's saying our existence, like that what we need to be freed from, is actually tied to this current battle between truth and lies, about who we are and who he is. And what we need to be freed from And we need to be freed from this bondage so we really can believe and then know this truth. But again, in this, Jesus is demonstrating like we can't do this on our own, right? He's saying that we need to be freed from our captivity to lies to know the truth, but what we know is we can't move ourselves. And as we encounter Jesus' words here, we realize we're almost in this impossible circuit, like this cage, if you will, that's rooted all the way back to Genesis 3, like as we see, like from the fall account on, there's this real spiritual enemy, this father of lies that Jesus talks about here. And he weaponizes deception, not just to enslave and ensnare, but actually to bring destruction and death to all who God has made. And the way that he primarily does this, and what Jesus is getting at here, he gives this false interpretation of reality, right? Like, like we saw that at the very beginning. What does he say to Adam and Eve? He gives this false interpretation of reality to them. He says, did God really say, right? Will you really die? Make some question, is God really good? And this is why Jesus emphasizes that he's speaking with all authority. And he says, his words alone are true because he did really say, and it is really true. I mean, three times he tells us, or he tells this group, I tell you the truth. So I ask, like, whose interpretation of the world, of what is good, like of your very life, do you really trust? Are you willing to trust it with Jesus? And I ask that because there are going to be points with how you feel or what you think or even what you want don't line up with what he says or what he promises. I heard someone speak to this 
Um, and they said there's actually two realities in each of our lives. There's the events that actually happen and then our ongoing interpretation of those events. Meaning not just what or how something happens in our lives, but maybe, and most, maybe most significantly, like what we ascribe to why. Like why did this happen in my life? And this is what Jesus is saying. Like as we abide in his word, we're actually set free by his truth. Because A, he alone can make sense of our life, but B, he can make all things work together for our good and his glory. Therefore, and this is so good, like therefore, as we maintain a perspective through the lens of his promises, we actually begin to rightly interpret the reality of our own lives. Like the call on our lives is simply to remain in his words as his disciples. It's actually, guys, this privileged opportunity to begin to look through hope with the words of his promises to see what he promised and guarantees that he will do. Like, imagine this morning, like if I could like give you a window somewhere back here, we could get in a line and you could go back and see through it and see exactly who Jesus is. Or look through this window and see exactly how Jesus is going to work all things out for the good of those who love him, right? Like you would line up to see that window. You say, I want to see it. And the maybe thing, maybe then I would believe. Like, I can't give you that. I don't give you that. But God has given us this word. And this is what is a window to. We realize we're not just encounters the living word of God as we have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us as he speaks to us. But in it, we also read about what he's done for us. We get to look through the cross in the empty tomb and we look through with trusting hope then through that perspective that he will then redeem and resurrect everything in our lives as well. I heard someone once say that this kind of hope, looking through this kind of hope, the hope that Christians have, is a hope that is really just faith on its tiptoes. That, that biblical hope is different than all other kinds of hope because it's a hope with certainty of what is to come, even if you can't see it yet. And it reminds me of like, so our two-year-old, you might have seen Brooks, you'll definitely see him after service, probably running around. Um, he, he's figured out now, like, trick-or-treat season, where all the, the candy's at already, right? Because we've done enough. And so we have this, this basket that we've dumped everything, and we keep stacking it up to get higher and higher so he can't reach it because he's figured out how to push the chair. He thinks pretty quietly. And he can't see in the basket now because we've raised it up too high, but he can stand on his tiptoes in this chair, and he knows that that candy's in there. So he can maybe see glimpses of it, but he knows if he stands on his tiptoes with faith that if he reaches out his hand, he's going to take hold of what he feels like is promised to him, this candy, right? That he can, he can have it. Even if he can't see it, he looks through with hope. It's really faith on tiptoes that he will get a Kit Kat bar. Um, same with us, right? Like if Jesus has already come, if he's already died and he's already risen from the dead, and not just that, but he actually lives right now interceding on our behalf, how much more sure can we be that we will take hold of what he promises for us? But Jesus says, these are his words for us, but he says that also Satan, while this is promised us, he is also simultaneously seeking to distort your understanding and trust of this reality, of what is good, of who God is, and of how God is working in your life. Like he seeks to twist and confuse or hide the truth of God and his active presence in the world and in your life. And he does it most often through convincing you to trust in something you can control, right? Or maybe you're someone you control, can control, or measure, or have. And he takes God's creation, and because of our self-centered disposition of our hearts towards sin, he actually undermines the truth of God through lies where we find ourselves becoming more and more believing things as deception and lies, right? He twists it and we find ourselves convinced by it. 
And yet Jesus says these lies, this sin, are the very thing that enslave us. And this is really the heart of the issue for those that Jesus says don't have real belief. Like they thought they were free. Their identity was rooted, though, in misplaced and sinful trust. Like they thought they were sons. That's what they kept saying. No, we're sons. And Jesus saying, no, you're slaves. I believe this is why, um, tied to their need being set free, that John records for us this back, in this back and forth the name Abraham recorded 11 times. So anytime you see something in a short chapter written 11 times, you think that's probably significant, right? I'll just start counting. And the reason is, like, as this Jewish group challenged Jesus' assessment that they were slaves, they kept saying, no, no, no. Like, we're children of Abraham. Abraham is our father. Are you greater than Abraham, Jesus? And what they were doing is specifically they were repeating or they were repeatedly appealing to their sonship because it was their existing way for identifying themselves in this world. And really, this is true of all of us. Like, we're all searching for identity that will give us some sort of sure standing in the world. And this group that Jesus is talking to, they have located their identity in being offspring of Abraham. So when Jesus tells them that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, he's actually communicating that one of the things that they need to be set free from is any pre-existing form of identity that is primary in their life. He says, oh, any pre-existing form of identity that, that is primary to me, you've got to be set free from. Like for their belief to have been real belief, they had to be willing to identify solely with Jesus. Meaning then, discipleship to Jesus, like real belief in Jesus, means soul identification with Jesus. This is why real belief then again requires real belonging to Jesus. Because to really be free from sin, it means we are found in him. These Jewish people, they rejected Jesus because they could not relinquish their primary identity as being children of God, right? As children of Abraham even though in their belief, unbelief they really weren't, right? Because if they really believed, they'd realize the promise to Abraham wasn't just an abundance of children, but it was one promised son who then would bless all of the nations. In fact, it's why Jesus is trying to get this Jewish people to see the current hope of their identity is actually him. That's why he says, you will know this truth and it'll set you free because the thing you actually yearn for, that you long for, it's me. And that's why maybe most significantly with this group of people, Jesus, in this back and forth, he's using this conversation to build up to a point then where he explicitly shares the truth of who he really is. Like he's already shared vaguely all the way up to verse 58 what this truth is and it'll set them free. And we've kind of referred to it vaguely to this point as just this idea of truth. But as he closes the conversation, he explicitly makes clear what this truth is, or better yet, who this truth is, and that it's him and that he is God. Like here in verse 58, we have maybe one of the most powerful statements that Jesus makes in all of the Gospels. Like here we have Jesus definitively saying that he is God. Like do you realize how good that is, right? Like how powerful that is. We don't just have people who followed him or maybe lived decades or centuries after ascribing deity to Jesus. It wasn't just the apostles or the letters to the churches that say that he is God, but he says it himself. Like you can go home today with hope because Jesus not only demonstrated his divinity, he declared it of himself, right? And actually, we see what he's doing here. As he says it, he says it in the most profound, personal way. And here's how. In Exodus 3.13, if you're familiar, Moses asks, like, okay, like the burning bush scene, right? He says, okay, if they ask who sent me, what your name is, who should I say that you are? And what does God say? God, God says, I am who I am. 
Tell them I am sent me to you. Like in that passage, God identifies his name. He shares who he is. And the direct translation in Hebrew is a little bit difficult, but it's essentially is I am the one who is. And here Jesus, after being continually questioned about who he is, he says, truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. And I think even in the English translation, we can get at what he's saying, but it's even better when we begin to realize what's happening here in the Greek. Because not only does the way that John records this I am statement, is it like a direct translation from the Hebrew to the Greek would have been, like pointing back so we know he's making that same exact statement that Moses, uh, Moses made um, or recorded of God in Exodus 3. But also the way that, that John records this, what we see here is Jesus, he's actually going out of his way to intentionally speak with like abnormal grammar, right? He's being purposely clunky in, in, in his vernacular here. Like, it, it, it would have been a lot smoother to answer their question in verse 57, where they ask, you aren't 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham. It would have made much more sense for him to respond, before Abraham was, I was, right? That would have been simpler, and it made much more sense from a grammatical statement, state, uh, standpoint. Like, the verb tense in this conversation, the way he concludes it, it doesn't line up, it doesn't make sense. But then again, it does, right? It makes perfect sense. And he knows exactly what he's doing. Jesus is making complete sense. And they completely understood what he was saying, because he is saying, I am God. And for them, because this statement collapsed the hope that they had constructed for themselves, it led, it led them to seek to unsuccessfully try to kill him in the chapter, right? Like they picked up stones and also led them ultimately to crucify him. Like when we are directly encountered with the reality of who Jesus is, it will collapse any other reality we have set foundational for ourselves. Like to believe this statement for this group of people, to believe this statement would have actually crushed their whole lives. So they sought to crush Jesus. You think about it here, like how wonderful is this? Christ in his kindness, in his sovereignty, because he is who he says he is. He is, I am who I am. When they ultimately did crush him, it was all part of his plan to be crushed for them. Like Isaiah 53, it was God's will to what? To crush him. It was his will then to be crushed. And in his death and being crushed by them and for them in this death, they could actually now have permanent position and belong with him. In this death, they can now truly believe in him. And for us, this is our truth. Like this is our statement of freedom. This word is our hope that we cling to as we truly abide. Because we recognize that Jesus, he isn't just a better teacher with a greater truth. He is God. He doesn't just give us new beliefs to believe. He actually calls us to believe in him for who he is and what he has done. Jesus is the truth that will set us free. This morning, like, consider who Jesus is. Like, Jesus, he is God-made man. No less, no less one than the other. The one who can both forgive and be subject as a fully righteous substitute to bear our sin. Both our God and our mediator to God, Right? Like Hebrews 1 and 1 Timothy 2, 5, like he's the full embodiment of God. He is God himself. And yet 1 Timothy 2, 5 says he is the God man who mediates on our behalf. He is our means and the end. He's both the way and the truth and the life. He is simultaneously infinite and yet now subject to the finite, eternal, forever and always. Yet 2,000 years ago in little Bethlehem, born as a baby to Mary, he's omniscient. And yet one, yet one who grew in wisdom and stature. He's omnipresent 
And yet now in his bodily resurrection, he has elected to forever subject himself to one particular place at a time as he remains not just with us, but like us. He's omnipotent, right? He's all powerful. Yet he knew what it was like to grow hungry and tired. He is one who can never die and yet was killed for our sins. He's one who raised himself up from the dead and yet laid buried in a tomb waiting to be risen. This morning, there are all kinds, there are potentially all kinds of rightful applications because we probably could have spent a year, the rest of this year, pulling out all the different themes that this chapter brought to the surface. But I think maybe the most important question to leave ourselves with is simply how do you respond to this Jesus then when he says, I am the God of your life? Like, how do you respond to a God like this? And I think because you're here in this room, it's likely not to pick up stones to kill him. I don't know, maybe, but I doubt that. I mean, it's a first step in. But nonetheless, do you allow him his rightful place as king in your life? Or are there still areas in your life where you continually sin and refuse to repent and therefore crucify Christ? Like where he says, I want to be Lord in that area, and yet you refuse to repent. Like where Jesus says, he alone is God. Are you holding back your full trust from obeying his words and therefore refusing the full privilege to remain in him as his disciple? Like what is the posture of your heart to Jesus' words? Is it to question him? or to worship him in real belief. So as we're about to move now to our time of worship once more together, my prayer is that as we do this, and Chad shared this so wonderfully at the very beginning, it's an opportunity for us to respond in worship appropriately to the reality of who Jesus is. And so this morning, if that's it, you need to repent of sin. If you need to repent, I pray that you repent as you proclaim your trust in Jesus for who he is. That this is a time that you can repent and proclaim back to him who he is. Not who you need to become, but what he's done for you and who he can bring you to be. But maybe your response is just to worship him. Like to worship because you long for nothing more than the joy to remain in him. Like I want to invite us as we get to sing once more together to like into this longing, like Chad spoke about this, that we get this once a week window of time together. That's it. We get one time a week, all of us together, to worship Jesus, to raise our voices collectively and worship together. And then we go home on our own. We spend the rest of our week away from each other. Individually, we go each of our own ways. So may like for the last 15 minutes, we feel the weight and the joy as we proclaim together our belief that together he has made us belong. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite you to join and proclaim this belief together that we do indeed belong to this Lord. God, we thank you for your word. God, I thank you for what you've done. God, I, I thank you that you have moved in my life, that I would have identified with this group who didn't have real belief, and it wasn't because I, I studied harder God, I got the, all the facts straight. God, I could pass the quiz, but, but rather you revealed yourself to me, that you spoke and you drew me near to you. And in that, I could cling to you in real belief for who you are. God, I thank you that there's a room full of people who are represented by this truth. God, you promised then as we recognize this truth, as we submit ourselves to remain in the promise of your word that we will experience and know real freedom. 
God, I know that you will make good on your promises, so I ask that you will continue to allow your Holy Spirit to hold us convictionally in this truth so we can celebrate this freedom. Even this morning, will there be people who take steps towards this freedom? There, there are real, concrete areas in their life where they're not experiencing freedom, God. May you share not just the truth in of who we are, but who you are. And may God, we know that. May we leave this place changed because we know you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.